Welcome to the sermon podcast of Resurrection Community Church in Virginia Beach. We seek to connect people to God and one another through His Word, and hope this sermon brings you closer to God. So now we'll hear God's Word from John chapter 19. Uh, we'll be reading verses 17 through 42, and this is this is this is it. Uh, I mean, it's not quite it. There's a few there's a few chapters of John left after this, but this is. This is the culmination of the story. Uh, This is when Jesus will be crucified. And it's always a challenge whether we're reading the Bible on our own or whether we are um, or whether we're going through it on Sunday mornings and preaching through it. When we get to stories like Jesus' crucifixion that are so familiar, so fundamental, so it's so easy to just fall back into you know, the pictures you've seen, the things you've thought about, the stories you've always heard. Okay, well, Jesus died on the cross. But as you listen today, what I want you to listen especially for is what is John saying? Because John is, yes, John is telling the story that Jesus died on the cross. But as always, John is showing us so much more. And one of the things you'll notice, I guarantee you'll notice as I read this, is over and over again, John is referencing scriptures from the Old Testament, like like a bunch of times. Like John likes scriptures from the Old Testament. He's done that throughout, but it it like ramps up here. And to fulfill the scriptures, as it was written, we get it like four or five times just in these verses. And as as you read that, sometimes when you read these things, you can think that they were all kind of lined up in the Old Testament as like, here's what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. But that's not... That's not really how it was. Like these verses that John is quoting were scattered throughout the Old Testament. And John is pulling them together to say, look what Jesus has done, how he has pulled all the threads together. So I want you to listen to these and think about how Jesus is pulling together so many parts of the story in his death. So I'm going to read now from John chapter 19, starting at verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now fulfilled, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the, Jew, of, G, of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this uh, day. We thank you that we can come together and listen to your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, the, for what Jesus did that day so long ago. We thank you that it was written down and preserved for us. And now we pray that as we reflect on your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you sink it deep into our hearts, that it would not merely be information for our heads, but transformation for our lives, changing the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we live. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, I discussed a great, uh, a great fantasy epic. And I decided that this week it's time for another great fantasy epic. Uh, so if last week was Lord of the Rings, there's only so many great fantasy epics out there. And so, no, it's not Star Wars. It's, it's Harry Potter this week. So in Harry Potter, in, in the last book of Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is, while on the one hand it's a book of, of glory and conclusion and fulfillment and victory, if you read it, it's a book with a lot of angst. And throughout all of Book 7, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Harry, the hero, uh, if you're not familiar, is, is full of angst. Harry's actually full of angst really throughout the series. But particularly in Book... I mean, it's a, it's a teen series, right? So of course he's full of angst. But, um, but particularly in this book, Harry is full of angst because he is confused. And they have been fighting for years. They've been suffering under attacks from the evil one, from the evil Lord Voldemort. And Harry's hero, the one who was leading them, Professor Dumbledore, had died at the end of book six. And now Harry doesn't know what to do. Oh, I was just pointed out that I was a spoiler, sorry. Sorry, sorry for the spoilers. Um, and yeah, it's been out for a while. And so, and so Harry is wondering, what, what do I do? And he has all these questions, all these things that he wasn't told, all these little bits of information that Dumbledore had started to tell him but he can't see how it all fits together. 
And this is the question throughout the book. What do I do? Where do I go? How does this all fit together? What am I supposed to do? And then toward the end of the book, they're in the epic battle, and he gets the memories of Professor Snape. And he finds out how all the pieces start to fit together. And he sees all the things. And the conclusion of it is he sees all that Dumbledore was doing, all that Snape was doing, all the things that his mother and father had done. It all starts to come together. But what he realizes is that the only way to finish this story is that he has to die. And he walks out of Dumbledore's office where he's learned all this, and, and he walks out kind of in a sense of shock. Oh my gosh, this is how it ends. All that I've been fighting for, and now I'm just going to go and die. But also a sense of calm and resolution, because he, know, he sees how it's all going to fit together. He's going to die, and they're going to win. And as we see... Jesus come to the cross here, we get some of that same sense of all the threads coming together. Now Jesus, Jesus being, being God himself, you know, he kind of he knew all along. But for those of us following along, for his disciples watching, it's a little bit more like Harry saying, what, how is this all going to work? And they have this whole story throughout the Old Testament, the history of God's people. How is all this going to work? How is all this come together? And so so Jesus, um, so, so John here shows us in John chapter 19 how all of this starts to come together. And that's what all of these references are doing, is showing us how all the strands of the story come together in ways that we wouldn't necessarily inspect. Because when you look back through the history of the Old Testament, you see this hope of God coming to save his people. You see this hope of victory, of a restored kingdom of Israel, of a new King David striding to victory over all of his enemies, of Jerusalem at the center of the world. And yet you also see these references to suffering and dying. And, and you don't really know how is this all going to work? How does suffering and dying go together with victory? How does evil oppressive empires come together with God's sinful people failing to live up to his standards? And yet, on this day, on this cross, John shows us how Jesus brings all of those things together. So the, main, the, the thing that really catches your attention here, at least for me, in verse 20, 28, <laughs> he puts it out explicitly. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture. Like Jesus is sitting here saying, I am doing this to bring these things together. It's not that all, like I said earlier, it's not that all these things were out there and Jesus just happened to do them. He knew how this story was supposed to work. He knew that he was supposed to be bringing these things together. He knew who he was supposed to be, what role he was playing. He knew that he was the one who was coming to finish God's story. And so the main thing John is telling us here in his account of Jesus' death is that Jesus finishes God's story. He brings all the pieces of the story together. And so since Jesus finishes God's story, we then find our place in that story for ourselves. And see, our problem as people is that we get caught up in the wrong stories. We get caught up in our own ideas of what life is supposed to be like. We get caught up in our own ideas of success and fulfillment and even what is right and good and how we can help other people. And what God is telling us is that we need to embrace his story that we need to see how Jesus has brought all of this together, and then we find our place. Of course, Jesus is the central character here. Jesus is in control. He's calling for the wine. He's giving up his spirit when he wants to. 
He's saying things to his mother and John. So Jesus is still in control of everything as he finishes up this story. Where do we find ourselves? We're just kind of there. Jesus, where is it? By, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, and John. That's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, they're, they're just there. At the end, when Jesus, after he dies, after these things, Joseph Arimathea, disciple of Jesus, but secretly, and Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, they come and get the body. What, what are they doing? They don't know. They're just there. They're trying to play their part. They're trying to find their place. We keep our eyes on Jesus, who has put the story together, and then we find our place in that story and let him work it all out. And so there's three ways that we see this story in particular. I actually thought about having like five or six points, so just, just consider yourself blessed. Um, but I went back to three because, you know, I like three. So Jesus finishes God's story here. He finishes God's story in victory. He finishes God's story through suffering. And he finishes God's story for a new family. So we'll see how the elements of these story come together. Those are some of the threads that I said. You see in the Old Testament, where are they coming? How are these going to fit together? They fit together here on the cross. First, they fit together in victory. This has been a theme Throughout the Old Testament, God is coming back to rescue his people. A new king is coming. And one of John's major points here in John 19 is that Jesus is king. You see it in Pilate's interaction uh, with the chief priests at the beginning here. Pilate puts the sign on his head, verse 19. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the chief priests are like, I mean, he's not really the king. Like, come on, Pilate. We're, we're, we're crucifying him because he's a pretender. Can we change that to like, he's a pretender, he's a liar, he's the one who said this? And Pilate's like, nah, I'm just going to leave it there. Pilate's, Pilate's not a good character here. Pilate's doing it undoubtedly to mock the Jews and put them down and be like, look, I crucified your king. But while Pilate does that for his own motivations, whatever they may be, it stands here as truth for us. That when Jesus is on that cross, he is on that cross as king. We see it, too, in the fact that he is in control. He is in control. He is going to fulfill the scriptures. This is his place of victory. This is what he was heading for. This is what we saw a chapter earlier in the garden when Peter was ready to fight and defend him and keep him from being arrested. And Jesus is like, no, nope, this is the plan. Put your sword away. I'm going. This is his victory. This is where he goes for victory. The... Um, it, when he quotes, a lot of these quotations that he makes here are from Psalm 22. And it's interesting because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Psalm, Jesus also quotes Psalm 22 on the cross, but he quotes the beginning, the more famous part, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see Jesus forsaken by God on the cross. And that's true, but that's not what's being emphasized here. Instead, he's just putting himself in that position, the position of victory where he quotes, instead of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cost, cast lots. It's not a great thing, but it's still not the sense of forsaken. It's the sense of being in control. When he says, I thirst, he's quoting from another psalm, where he says, they gave me sour wine to drink. He's calling for that. He's in control of the situation. And then uh, uh, verse 36 says, not one of his bones will be broken. That's from Psalm 32, 
taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a psalm of hope. It's a psalm of protection. Jesus is standing here dead on the cross and yet quoting that none of his bones will be broken as a reminder that this is God's victory. This is God's victory, his preservation. And it's looking ahead, of course, to the next chapter. We can't really be on the cross saying it's the end of the story without knowing that he's coming back. There's always hope that he's coming back here. He knew that. The disciples should have known it. They failed to realize it, but they should have. But none of his bones were broken. Why? Because he's coming back. Because God preserves his righteous own. Jesus comes to the cross as king in victory. And he brings victory on the cross. What, what kind of king is on the cross? It's his victory over Satan. This is the ultimate death of Satan, the death of the serpent. Paul will pick this up later on his letters where he says that Jesus took the powers and principalities of the world, all the codes and their written regulations, and he nailed them to the cross, declaring victory there. This is his victory on the cross. So what does it mean for us that the cross is Jesus' victory? It means that if you are a Christian, if you say that you put your faith in Jesus, that you believe in him, you've been baptized into his body, you're part of his church, you should live in a sense of victory. There is hope in our lives. Whatever sadness and suffering you face, and we'll get there, we'll get there in a moment. Uh, we're at the cross after all. But there is a sense of victory, a sense of confidence, a sense that nothing can stop us. My friend and, and fellow pastor Bob in, uh, over in Chesapeake, who's also one of the elders uh, for resurrection, he likes to say, somewhat jokingly but somewhat truthfully, I mean, if the worst thing that can happen is death, and Jesus has also conquered death, what do you have to fear? And there's some truth to that. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, what do we have to fear? Jesus went to the cross, the ultimate shameful death, where Pilate was mocking his kingship, where the, his own people had turned against him, and he, he was hung on that cross declaring victory. He said, I have brought, this is the death of sin right here on the cross. This is the end of evil right here on the cross. I have taken it all on myself and I have declared victory. Now that victory comes through suffering because this is a deep recognition of the evil. Jesus is being put to death unjustly. He is taking on the Psalms of lament. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Um, I thirst. It's another psalm of lament. They gave me sour wine to drink. All have turned against me. Save me, O God. Even at the end, verse 37, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Now that, that's a weird one. If you want to know where that's from, you have to go back to Zechariah chapter 12. And let me tell you, if you've never read Zechariah, Zechariah is a weird book. Zach, uh, it's just weird. Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet. He prophesied after the, Israel, uh, after the Jews had gone off to exile, they came back, they were looking for hope, and he prophesies prophecies of hope, but they're weird. And there's a lot of things that are hard to understand. And if you look in Zechariah chapter 12, you'll see a lot of victory there. And then you'll come to this part in Zechariah chapter 12. He's declaring that Judah will be restored. They'll have victory over the nations. They'll defeat everybody. And Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verse 10. 
I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. And i got to believe, if you were listening to Zechariah, you'd be like, Zechariah, what in the world are you talking about? When God is speaking and says they will look on me whom they have pierced, like, what does that even mean? It's one of those parts of the Old Testament story, like, what does this mean? How did we go from victory to mourning? How is this working? Who is the firstborn son? So many questions as people were listening to Zechariah. I bet Zechariah had a lot of questions that he didn't know how to answer. But then it keeps going. Verse thir uh, Zechariah 13, uh, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Again, Zechariah probably didn't know what he was talking about. His listeners did not understand how that would work. But when we get to Jesus' cross, and the Roman soldier stabs him with the spear and pierces his side, and the blood and water flow out, you say, oh, oh, he's the one that they've pierced. And in that blood, as that blood flows out and that water flows out, there is that fountain for cleansing. For the fountain for cleansing is the forgiveness of our sins that comes only from the death of the perfect sacrifice. I don't think they could see that very well for Zechariah and the people of his time. But John standing there watching Jesus die, he saw it. And we see it. And we realize that in suffering, in Jesus' suffering, that suffering is for us. And in that suffering is cleansing and forgiveness for our sins. So what do we do with that? Realizing that the story of God is caught up in victory, but victory through suffering. First, we needn't be afraid of suffering. If Jesus, the Bible tells us clearly that as Jesus suffered for us, we will suffer like him. We will go through periods of suffering as well. But more importantly, we have to take hold of his suffering for us. We have to realize that that suffering was necessary. We have to admit that we have done wrong, that there was a need for cleansing, that our sins needed to be forgiven, that we, have not, we are not basically good people. We are people who need to be saved, who need to be rescued. He finishes God's story in victory. He finishes God's story through suffering. And he finishes God's story for a new family. In all of the drama of Jesus dying and these stories from the Old Testament, we get two interesting elements of the narrative. Probably the most confusing is this business with John and Mary. As Jesus is on the cross and he sees his mother, this is verse 26, and the disciple whom we love standing nearby said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. And you're kind of like, but... But why? 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 Like, Mary had other children. Like, James, the brother of Jesus, was a leader in the early church. Mary's sister was right there. Like, why did he give her to John? Why didn't somebody else take care of Mary? And then we see again, when Jesus is buried, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two of his disciples, secret disciples, take his body and bury him. Why? Why not his brothers? Why not his mother? These are things to be done by family. And yet, what Jesus is doing here, what John is showing us, is that in God's story, 
in Jesus' victory over evil, in his suffering for our sins, in his cross, in his death and resurrection, that Jesus has created a new family. That the new family is the family of God's people. That that does not negate the family ties that we have. I mean, Jesus' brother and mother, like I said, they'll be key fact people in the early church. We still have our family ties. But our deeper and more real connection is to the family of God's people. There's a phrase that you, you may be familiar with the phrase, blood is thicker than water. It's a funny phrase. If you want to go down internet rabbit holes, just Google it and try to figure out where it comes from and what it actually means. But most people understand it. We say it today. Blood is thicker than water, says family above all else. What the water is, nobody's quite sure. But, um, but blood is thicker than water, right? We care about family. But what we see in the Bible is that blood really is thicker than water. But in this case, it's the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that he shed to make a family stronger than any family bloodlines or any family blood ties. That in Jesus' blood, we are made into a new family. Why? Because our sins are forgiven. Because we have freedom and hope. We can, we can wrong one another and we can make it right. We can be forgiven for our sins. We can go out on mission together. We can enter this story as one family, as different people coming from different places and be connected to one another. So what does it mean for us to be part of this new family? It means we've got to find our place. We find our place in the story. We find our place in the family. And everybody has their own place in the family. Sometimes it's different places in different times. To care for the people around you. To receive help when you're in need of help. To give of your time. To give of your money. To give of your skills. To contribute all things for the good of the family as a whole. And to receive from the family when you're in need. To have people who will care about you. People who will challenge you. People who are looking out for you. People who want to walk through life together. Because Jesus has made a new family deeper than any human family could be. Jesus has brought all the parts of God's story together. He's finished up the story. He takes all those threads from the Old Testament. He finishes it on the cross, in victory, through suffering, for a new family. So as we find our place in the story, we find our place in the family of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us. We pray now that you would continue to speak to us, show us what this word means for us, not just today, but in days to come. Show us more and more what it means uh, that Jesus sacrificed for our sins on that cross. Pray that you would bless and guide us and lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from Resurrection Community Church. To learn more about our church and how you can connect with God and others, please visit resurrectionvb.org.